It seems kind of hopeless right now, but you're going to figure this out. This is pretty debilitating. I'm able to turn my pain into purpose. There are people out in the world that do understand what you're going through. Welcome to Major Pain. I'm your host, Jesse Mercury, and this week we'll be speaking with Daniel about schizophrenia. Daniel is an incredible schizophrenia advocate, and I first became familiar with him through his work on TikTok discussing his disease. I was immediately struck by his candor and his openness when discussing a disease that is often stigmatized. And that's a huge part of why Daniel does his public advocacy work, is to start to break down the stigma around schizophrenia. There are a lot of harmful representations of schizophrenia in the media that do not accurately represent what it's like to live with this disease. In fact, when Daniel was first diagnosed, he thought his life as he knew it might be over. And looking back, he knows that he couldn't be further from the truth. There are a lot of medication options to help manage schizophrenia. But something we'll discuss at length today is the fact that these medications have severe side effects. And Daniel is cycling through them rather quickly because of building a tolerance. But he'll talk us through all the medications he's tried and the varying reactions he's had to them. His first major symptom was a delusion that started around 17 years old that he was the Antichrist. And he lived under this belief for 10 years. He eventually realized that this delusion was a symptom of schizophrenia. And the way he describes coming to that realization and then sort of unraveling living under this delusion was really, really fascinating. He'll also talk to us about internal and external hallucinations and speech issues like poverty of speech and a severe stutter that he had to work through. I'm thrilled to have Daniel on the podcast today. He is such an incredible advocate, so open, and doing such important work breaking down the stigmas around schizophrenia. It made for an extremely interesting, very memorable conversation, and I'm so excited to share it with you today in just a few minutes. Before we get to that, I have some huge, huge announcements, two massive announcements, two of the biggest announcements that I've ever had to share on the podcast. It all happened this week. Two huge things happening in one week. So first of all, I am thrilled to announce that the Major Pain Podcast has received a creator grant from the Stimpunks Foundation. This is a $3,000 grant to support the creation of this podcast. I can't even believe I'm saying these words out loud. This is so thrilling for me. I mean, I haven't worked a regular job in almost seven years. It actually might be over seven years at this point. And this podcast is something that I started to have something that I could do within the limitations of my chronic illness. I just had my disability hearing a couple weeks ago. I'm waiting on the results. I just got my diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome. And then in the midst of that, I just got my first grant to support this podcast. It is massively, massively important to me. So incredibly helpful. A huge vote of confidence for what I'm doing with this podcast from an external source that I respect. And it allows me to keep creating this show because I have this massive financial support to do so. The Stimpunks Foundation provides mutual aid and human-centered learning for neurodivergent and disabled people. I urge you to check out their website and learn about their work at stimpunks.org. I have included that link in the show notes of this episode. I'm very excited to say that two members of the Stimpunks Foundation will be coming on the podcast to talk about what they do in the upcoming weeks. And I have decided that for as long as I am the current grantee of the Stimpunks Creator Grant, I am going to shout them out at the beginning of every episode for the next several months. 
The Stimpunks support neurodivergent and disabled people directly, which is so incredible. So if you are in need of mutual aid or are interested in a creator grant yourself, be sure to check out their website, stimpunks.org. And you have my extreme thanks, everyone at the Stimpunks organization. I am overjoyed and honored to be chosen as the current grantee. This allows me to keep creating and to experiment with some uh publicity with some marketing, which I've never done. I've never done any paid marketing at all for the podcast. And we've come so far just off word of mouth and off social media. So I'm really excited that this grant will afford me the opportunity to experiment with running some ads for the first time. One of my goals with this podcast is to generate a living wage for myself within my health situation, something that works with my body, works with my diagnosis. And this grant is a huge boost in that direction, something that gives me some foundation, a financial foundation to work off for the podcast for the first time ever. So I really, really appreciate this. I'm so excited about it. Thank you to the Stimpunks. The other huge piece of news that happened this week just happened yesterday, and I'm still buzzing about this. I thought about doing an entire episode about this, but I, you know, we just did a whole episode, my diagnosis episode, uh, where I shared the information that I have mast cell activation syndrome. And I just found out yesterday, I have a second diagnosis. I have been diagnosed with small fiber neuropathy. This is massive, massive, massive news. This was the moment that I've always wanted where I actually had a test result come back positive. It's never happened, you know? This is the first time where I've ever been tested for something specifically and then learned that I have it. Through diagnostic testing, I've never been so excited to have a disease in my life. <laughs> so just to remind you about what this is about, basically I had a skin biopsy done back in late June, early July, I think. They took five samples of my skin to look for nerve damage, and one of those samples came back positive. So what that means is that uh, there is a process in my body that is causing nerve damage over time. And for it to show up on any spots at all means that it is a systemic process that has been going on for a long time. And the theory that my doctors already had was that potentially mast cell activation syndrome was causing small fiber neuropathy, which basically means that, you know, mast cells releasing chemicals into my body constantly for years was causing nerve damage over time. It would explain a lot of my symptoms because mast cell activation alone did not account for all of the symptoms that I was experiencing. So small fiber neuropathy is sort of a downstream effect from mast cell activation. That's the current theory that we have for my complete diagnostic picture. Small fiber neuropathy causes burning sensations, you know, tingling and burning in the skin. It causes sensations where Touch is extremely painful, and it is also a form of dysautonomia because this nerve damage can affect your autonomic nervous system. So that can affect heart rate, it can affect your organs, it can cause dizziness, so much of what we've been looking into with me for years. I've mentioned a couple times on the podcast that when we first were turned on to the possibility that I might have small fiber neuropathy, I did some research and I found an article written by somebody with small fiber neuropathy who was describing how his legs would turn off randomly and he couldn't get his legs to work. When I read that article, it was, you know, it was that, that moment where I was like, this is me. This is, this is what I have. This sounds like me. And so much of what he described was exactly what I was experiencing. 
I felt much more attuned to that potential diagnosis than I did to mast cell activation at the time. But now the pieces all fit together. The mast cell activation is causing this other thing that is causing all this dysautonomia, all these strange things to happen in my body. The mast cell activation explains why I have reacted poorly to mold since second grade. Uh, back in second grade, I was having weird exhaustion, dizziness issues from being in a moldy classroom. Fast forward all the way into adulthood when all of this accumulated damage from mast cell activation is now causing a whole other disease, small fiber neuropathy, causing a lot of my pain, my burning sensations, which is what I went to the doctor for before leaving work about seven years ago. I was like, I'm having tingly, burning sensations in my arms and it's driving me crazy and I don't know what it is. Now I know what it is. It is small fiber neuropathy, we believe caused by mast cell activation. A couple episodes back when I sat down with Andy to talk about my MCAS diagnosis, we mentioned how I had had this biopsy for small fiber neuropathy and the results didn't come back. We only got back results for one out of the five biopsied spots. Several weeks later, I wrote back to the neurologist and said, hey, what's going on? I need these results. You took out pieces of my skin and sent it to a lab and I need to know what happened with those pieces of me. So did you find the results or can you get me in touch with the lab because I need to pursue this and figure out what happened. And she wrote back to me and said, we figured out what happened. The lab never lost your results. It was just filed differently than we expected, but we found them. And one of the spots has nerve damage that is in line with small fiber neuropathy. I screamed and ran back and forth in the house. I finally got that moment that I've always wanted of the test is positive. The test is positive. We have a positive result. And it bolsters our existing diagnosis of MCAS. And I just feel like so much more complete. I can't, I can't describe it. It's an incredible feeling. I feel so much more sure because now I, I have an actual test result that says you have a pain condition. You know, all of these years of intense pain that I've lived through, I now have proof it's an invisible illness. How do you prove pain? Well, we've done it. I have proof. This doesn't change anything from my treatment plan because the best way to treat small fiber neuropathy is to figure out what's causing the nerve damage and to stop that process. And we're pretty sure that's the MCAS because all of my small fiber neuropathy symptoms have significantly improved since going on the MCAS protocol. So we might have the complete answer at this point. Who knows? You know, <laughs> diseases often run in packs. I know that better than most people having conducted every interview of this podcast. But if you go back to the first episode of this show, I was always the guy with the mystery illness. And now I have not just one, but two diagnoses, two serious diagnoses that explain so much of what I've been through, if not everything. And I just feel rich. I feel wealthy with diagnoses. It's such an interesting feeling. I just feel wealthy with knowledge of what is happening, the processes happening in my body, understanding of what they're doing and how to uh, assert as much control as I can over them. Of course, that is the next step on the journey. It's Or the beginning of a new journey, I guess you could say, is living with the diseases. Once you get the diagnosis, you have to live with the disease. And that, of course, is a challenge, an ongoing challenge that I will be managing the rest of my life. But I'm beyond grateful to be in a place where I now am armed with the knowledge that I need to know how to approach that management. And that's still just such a new feeling that I'm so excited to be feeling. So as you can see, it's been a huge week for me. These two things, this grant, this new diagnosis, 
These are massive, massive things for me. And the fact that it all happened in one week is incredible. Within a couple months of my first diagnosis is also incredible. And, you know, I just had my disability hearing. If I actually get on disability and get back pay for the years I wasn't able to work, that would also be beyond incredible. So a lot is happening right now. I feel like I've, I've just really turned a corner. It's so, so exciting. And I'm really looking forward to, to the future at this point. I am still recovering from COVID. It really did put a damper in my uh, recovery that I was experiencing since starting the MCAS protocol. I'm still not able to exercise. If I exercise, I get really sick. So I'm trying to just take it easy, trying not to push too hard. And when I do take it easy, I am noticing a lot of improvement. I was experiencing a lot of brain fog and body pain. And, you know, basically all of the symptoms that I had before getting a diagnosis were coming back. And it was, it's very concerning as someone with mast cell activation, getting COVID can really trigger uh, a relapse. So I'm kind of living through that. It's not super severe. It's not great, but I am seeing some slow improvement and I am very optimistic that I will get back to where I was before having COVID. I have a couple other thank yous to share this week. Thank you to whoever it was that left us another five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. That is always so incredibly appreciated. Five-star ratings on that platform, on Spotify, wherever you listen to the show. Uh, I always love to see that. That's a huge way to support the show. If you have left us a review on any platform other than Apple Podcasts, take a screenshot, email it to me. I'd love to share it on the show. And of course, if you do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, I will see it and share it. Also, thank you to whoever it was that signed up for Rare Patient Voice this week. This is such a cool program that I'm still so excited to be a part of. And now I can sign up under two diagnoses. Oh, my God. (laughs) Uh, Rare Patient Voice, of course, is an amazing program where you can sign up to participate using our affiliate link, rarepatientvoice.com slash majorpainpodcast. Let them know what your diagnosis is. It can be a diagnosis of any kind. Or let them know if you are a caregiver for a specific diagnosis. They will contact you if they have a research study or survey that fits your profile. And if you participate in a study or survey, you'll be paid an average of $120 an hour for your time. This is an amazing opportunity to share your expertise about living with your disease and get paid and support the community with your disease through furthering our understanding of the disease itself. So cool. And for every person who signs up using our affiliate link, this podcast gets a $10 Amazon gift card, which is going to purchase my supplements that I'm using to combat mast cell activation. So really cool program. I always appreciate when anyone signs up. Thank you to the new person this week. And of course, thank you to our amazing community of listeners on Patreon who are supporting this podcast with monthly financial contributions. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up for as little as $2 per month, all the way up to our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia, who are going above and beyond to help support this show. We have different levels of recognition, gifts, including our Major Pain coasters and tote bags that you can receive on our different levels of support. And everyone who supports the show on Patreon gains access to our monthly bonus episodes with myself and Andy. And this month, we are going to talk about my small fiber neuropathy diagnosis. So that is going to be a very exciting bonus episode that we'll be recording shortly. Head to patreon.com slash majorpainpodcast to sign up. All the important links to support the show are in the description of every episode. 
One more exciting thing I wanted to share before we jump into our episode with Daniel about schizophrenia today is that the Village Tree Health Support Network, a nonprofit founded by one of our previous podcast guests, Toya Jules, is running its pilot program and they are focusing on a disease we've covered on this podcast, hydradenitis superativa or HS. They are looking for HS patients to participate in a focus group. This is a really exciting opportunity. If you have HS, if you are above 18 years of age and you live in the United States of America, I highly encourage you to sign up to participate in the pilot program of the Village Tree Health Support Network. There is a link to a questionnaire to sign up in the description of this podcast. As we jump into our episode today, I have to remind you, as always, that my guest and I are not medical professionals, and please do not take any medical action based off what you hear on this podcast without first consulting your doctor. And with that, we'll jump into our really exceptional episode with Daniel about schizophrenia. Daniel, welcome to the podcast. Hi. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Let's get to know you a little bit. So, Daniel, why don't you tell us about yourself? Well, my name is Daniel, and currently I work on a farm. I'm a farm manager. Uh, I moved in with my family to help them on the farm. They were kind of falling behind, and they're like, hey, would you like to come and live here rent-free? And I was like, hey, rent-free sounds amazing. <laughs> so I sold my house and moved to a different state, so that was a lot of fun. Um, so I've been doing that for a few weeks now. Um, prior to that, and pretty much all of my career has been in education in some form or another. Um, I worked for the Virginia Cooperative Extension Service, and so I did educational programs through them. And then I also worked for a public school system. I was a kindergarten teacher. Um, so passion, my passion is like education and teaching people and helping them understand things that maybe they don't understand. Um, and that goes all the way from kindergarten all the way to senior year. Um, so I've worked with all of those age groups before. Um, I also enjoy things like archery and painting and tennis and hiking and climbing. So those are some of my hobbies and such. Yeah, amazing. Um, sounds like some stuff has changed significantly in, in your life in the last couple of weeks. Yes, um, it, it definitely has. It's yeah. been a huge change. <laughs> How are you feeling about that shift? I know, you know, I've, I'm familiar with you uh, through TikTok and I've heard you talking about working as an elementary school teacher. Um, and I know you have a passion for education. It really comes through in your advocacy work on TikTok, um, just educating the public about your experiences. Um, but what does that feel like to, to switch from that to working at a farm? It's, it's actually been kind of nice. Uh, farm work is very repetitive and kind of has a, a um, it's very like relaxing in a way. Um, not that it's not hard work. It is definitely a lot of hard work. I'm very tired and I'm sleeping very good at night since I moved in, mm. but there's still um, just something very appealing about just doing a job each day, you know, and just like, Hey, go fix this or figure out this problem. It's very different than teaching or any of the educational things I've done before. 2016 is when I officially moved out of my parents' house after graduating college. I've lived on my own since then. And so moving back in with people has been a, has been a big shift. Mm. And so we're, we're working through me living with other people now. <laughs> I have to put clothes on when I'm leaving the bathroom. Like, so there's just all these little things you have to remember. Not that I've ever forgotten that, but um, you get the idea. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Well, yeah, it sounds like an exciting life change. I mean, I can totally imagine that, uh, you know, working on the farm, working with your hands, working with the earth, it must be sort of grounding. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, uh, let's jump into your health journey. So Daniel, what is your major pain? 
<laughs> my major pain is kind of twofold. The first part is that I have schizophrenia. And the other major pain that goes with that is the side effects of the medication I'm on to treat my schizophrenia. Wow. <laughs> there's kind of two major pains. They go hand in hand and interlock with each other. But um, there's definitely two distinct things there. <laughs> yeah, that's so interesting. That's such an important uh, distinction to think about is, you know, sometimes the medications we have to take to manage uh, illness can bring on what feels like another illness altogether. Yeah, it, but... You know, with things like schizophrenia and other, you know, the 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 kind of the heavy hitting disorders, I guess is what I would call them. Um, you know, that's just a price we have to pay and a choice we have to make of um, do we destroy our body or do we save our mind? And you got to pick one sometimes, unfortunately. Yeah. Wow. That's fascinating. I definitely want to talk more about that. Uh, before we get into that, let's let's cover the basics of what is schizophrenia. I'm excited to hear about this from the perspective of someone who lives with it. <laughs> So um, schizophrenia is a neurological disorder. It's um, characterized by five different symptoms. There's um, delusions, hallucinations, disorganized speech, disorganized behavior and thoughts, and negative symptoms. So negative symptoms, um, throughout this, you may hear me refer to positive and negative symptoms. Doesn't mean there's good symptoms. That's not what that means. So um, negative symptoms are things that take away from the experience of an individual. So things like poverty of speech, so an inability to have words, depression, um, taking away joy, um, taking away uh, motivation. So stuff that's called, that's called abolition. Um, so those are things that take away from the experience of an individual. So they're called negative. And then there's positive symptoms, which are things that add to the experience of the individual. So that is like your delusions, hallucinations, paranoia, uh, disorganized speech, stuff that's adding to the experience. So that's the difference between a positive and a negative symptom. Um, but yeah, so there's those five symptoms. And then you have to have them. Let's see if I can remember it correctly. Uh, you have to have it for at least a period of six months. It has to be impacting your day-to-day -day life in some form or fashion. And out of those three, symptoms you have to have one of them has to be one of the top three so one of your symptoms has to be delusions hallucinations or disorganized speech in, in order to so be qualified the, as schizophrenia yeah so that's the diagnostic criteria yeah which wow. is a bit of a mouthful but <laughs> uh, fascinating so interesting when when did this start for you so the earliest symptoms I had was when I was 17 years old, I had a delusion that I was the Antichrist. Um, it went unnoticed because I didn't tell anyone about it, because why would you, um, is what I ask a lot. Sometimes people ask, well, why didn't you tell anyone? And, and the real answer is, why would I? I thought I was had this great big role in the end of the world in Armageddon. And why would I tell anyone about that, right? I wasn't in therapy or anything. So why would that ever even come up? So it definitely started around when I was, I'd say 17 or 18, right around in there. Um, that delusion lasted for 10 years until I was 27 years old. And that's when I started experiencing the other symptoms of schizophrenia. So that's when I developed uh, my earliest symptoms were a, my earliest symptoms when they kind of ramped up, I guess is what I'm trying to say at, at 27 was a stutter. I developed a really bad stutter, which thankfully I've gotten through that. Um, cause that was really frustrating. Speaking with a stutter is very frustrating. <laughs> um, there was the stutter and then there's also hearing voices in my head. Um, and a lot of people may not recognize that the voices can be internal or external. So internal hallucinations, they sound just like thoughts in your head, external, they're outside. So when I thought of hearing voices, I thought what most people think of is that external, like you're hearing someone talking in the room with you, but that's not the only way hallucinations manifest. They can be internal too and sound just like thoughts. So mm -hmm. when I started hearing those thoughts in my head, I couldn't control. I thought it was just anxiety. So I made an appointment to see my doctor and it all went um, downhill from there or uphill from there. <laughs> wow. So you finally see a doctor and then how long did it take to get diagnosed with schizophrenia from that point? 
So um, I can I can distinctly remember the, what the, the the timeline. It was early May when I went to when I made an appointment to see my doctor, and it was just like, hey, I'm not I'm not feeling right. I can't control my thoughts. They're racing all the time. And as we talked, she asked if I had a history of mental illness in my family, and um, I wasn't sure at the time if I had any. I, my both my parents died when I was young, so I didn't really hmm. know their health history as well as you know maybe other people would. But after doing some interviews and talking to some aunts and uncles, they confirmed that my father had some kind of mental illness. And so once I found that out and I started doing just a little bit of research on mental illness, voices in head, of course, that immediately pointed to schizophrenia. Um, and as I was looking at the symptoms and it was just kind of going check, 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 check. And I was like, oh, ha, I guess I might have schizophrenia. So I actually had a standing appointment with my doctor about at the end of May. And when I came in and saw her, because I made the first appointment, of course, in that I was having an issue. But then I had our regular six month appointment um, later in the month for that May. And I said, I think I have schizophrenia. And she said, I'm not surprised you diagnosed yourself, but I think you're right. <laughs> so um, we made an appointment to see a psychiatrist to get that confirmed. So that took about maybe two weeks after that. So two weeks after that, I saw a psychiatrist who initially diagnosed me as schizoaffective. Um, but after he passed away, unfortunately, um, I, I got moved to a different psychiatrist in the practice and she diagnosed me with schizophrenia. So the whole process took about five to six weeks to get fully diagnosed. And it wasn't a shock because you'd already diagnosed yourself. You'd already had that moment of, oh, this is this is me when you went yeah, through that just checklist. Go- yeah, going through that list and just seeing everything, I was like, yeah, this this definitely makes sense. And that's not to say, I mean, maybe it wasn't a shock, but that's not to say it wasn't terrifying because mm-hmm. I didn't know then what I know now. And in my head, I thought schizophrenia was like a death sentence and that yeah. you were doomed to live in residential care for the rest of your life. So knowing what I know now, you know, I feel I feel good about my outlook and my prognosis, but then I didn't at all. <laughs> yeah, I can only imagine. I. I'm curious to hear more about this 10-year-long period where you were under the belief that you were the Antichrist. I'm a lot of people are really curious about that, yeah. I'm just trying to imagine the, um, the emotional weight of believing that to be true and feeling that you have this role to play. Can you tell me a little about that? Yeah, so um, my delusion, because my brain refuses to do something half-assed, it's going to come up with something very complicated. Um, my delusion that I, had the, that I was the Antichrist was um, actually the belief that I was a potential vessel for the Antichrist to kind of possess, like, mm. a, like a demonic possession, mm. and that I needed to accept my role as one of those. So there was like, so there, so there's like millions of vessels all around the planet that could have become the Antichrist if they accepted their role. And so it's just a matter of like praying to the devil and saying, I accept the role. Then you get possessed and then you end the world. (laughs) Wow. So kind of where, so that went on for 10 years where I I fought with myself, you know, day and night, whether or not to do it. (laughs) Yeah. Did you land on a decision of whether or not to do it? No. (laughs) Yeah. You just, you were just tortured by this for 10 years. Yeah, it was constantly up in the air because I, I would tell myself that I that I didn't want to do it because of well obvious reasons. But then I thought about, well, someone has to do that role, you know, because because I am a religious person. Mm. So, you know, I kind of had that thought of like, well, someone has to fill that role. Maybe it is my destiny. Maybe I should do it so that we can hurry up and, you know, be done. <laughs> Just get it over with. Wow. Um, yeah, I went back and forth a lot. And then once you get your schizophrenia diagnosis, what was the process of unraveling these thoughts. Oh, that's, so that's a really interesting thing that happened um, that 
sounds hard to believe, but I swear on my heart, this is truth. Uh, when I was reading the list of symptoms, when I was going down that check, check, check that I talked about earlier, um, one of the things it said was common delusions and it said antichrist. And when I read that, I, I like physically heard and felt something snap in my head, wow. which I know doesn't make sense. There's no moving parts up there. I know that. But I'm telling you, I heard and felt something snap in my head. And that was, it was like it was like a psychic shock. And it was just like, that's not that's not real. Like, wow, <laughs> that, that's, this is because of this because of schizophrenia. And like, even when I was diagnosed or like when I diagnosed myself, I still didn't put it together until later on. So remember, we're talking about between that first appointment early in May and then the same appointment, that same doctor at the end of May, between those weeks, just sitting there trying to figure out everything else. I still believed that I was the Antichrist and didn't recognize it as a delusion until I saw it listed. And that's when I had that really strange experience. What incredible presence of mind to recognize in that moment that isn't real. Was there a sense of relief? Was there a sense of sadness? No, it was definitely, it was definitely relief. It was relief and um, trying to think of the right emotion. Like I said, it was, it was a shock. I mean, you know, it was a big shock wave in my head, uh, but there's definitely some relief of good. That's, that's not real. I don't have to worry about that anymore. Uh, but no, no sadness or anything. I can tell you that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's not a part of you that feels like, oh, I, my destiny is gone. You know, I can't imagine living with a, a destiny oh, for 10 yeah. years and then feeling like, oh, it's gone. No, I didn't experience that. But that that's a very good point. I'm sure other people have. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a destiny that you wanted. So that's <laughs> right. So that makes sense. Um, so how does your life change after you get this diagnosis? I imagine that's when medication must come into the mix. Yeah, medication and um, just slowly realizing that there is something wrong with me. And um, mm -hmm. that took a long time to really swallow because, like I said, one of the first symptoms I got around 27 was the stutter. And I used to be very good at speech. I um, used to pride myself on being able to talk and communicate well. And schizophrenia kind of took that away from me. So that was a big impact on my life because, I mean, when it was when it was first starting, when it was first happening, I mean, stutter was insurmountable. I mean, it just, I couldn't get through it. I couldn't get by it. And I had to really slow down and say each word very slowly and deliberately. And for someone who talks fast, that was really hard for me to do. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So timeline-wise, you, you started symptoms at 17, got a diagnosis around 27. And how old are you now? 31. 31. So you've just... So we're about four years in. Wow, you're just four years in. So you're, you're not even that deep into this journey. And it sounds like you've made massive progress in four years. I have an amazing healthcare team. Wow. Since that's incredible. That's so incredible. So what, what was the first medication you tried? The first medication I tried was a medication called Abilify. Um, it was not a good fit for me. I had all my symptoms get worse and I developed some new symptoms. Um, it was not a good time. <laughs> that sounds awful. <laughs> what, what were the new symptoms you developed? The new, so at the time, I wasn't really experiencing that many visual hallucinations, but the Abilify triggered them. And so, and I, I don't blame Abilify for having them now, although they're, they're infrequent for the most part. But um, yeah, they triggered some visual hallucinations and all my other symptoms just got worse. The voices got louder and less coherent and it was less voices and more just noise in my head and I couldn't hear myself think. Mm. So um, Abilify was not a good match for me. <laughs> yeah, that's fascinating. Can, can you tell us, I, this might be hard to describe, but can you tell us a little bit about what it feels like to have these voices in your head? Are there like, are, are you hearing specific um, sentence structure or like a specific theme that they're talking about? 
or is it just like noise, like you said, where you just can't hear yourself think because it's like being in a crowded room? So this this will vary from person to person. Uh, so for me, the way my voices tend to manifest is um, rehearsing and replaying conversations or imagining conversations. So it's kind of those three categories. So of course, rehearsing conversations is when I'm thinking about talking to someone. For instance, thinking about talking to you today, mm. I have a lot of voices in my head going through what questions is he going to ask? What questions do I need to be prepared to answer? What am I going to say? So of course, we all do that to some extent, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. you probably did the same thing before we sat down for this meeting. You sure. planned about what you wanted to say but the difference is that i can't control it and it's not my voice and it won't stop (laughs) so um you know you can typically put that down and walk away but i'm not i wasn't actively working on it i was trying to do laundry and i couldn't get the voices to stop so for me that's how it manifests if things are really bad yeah it's like crowded room just can't hear anything at all um for sure but that's how mostly mine manifest yeah and what about the uh visual hallucinations so visual hallucinations so far have been I'd say relatively infrequent, certainly after I've been more stabilized. The earliest um, hallucinations I had was the all the trees on the side of the road all looked exactly the same. If there was a white flower in one tree, every single tree had the same white flower in the same white spot, in the same spot, and all the branches were shaped the same way. So it was really, really strange. And then um, some of the other visual hallucinations I had included um, like seeing an eclipse, uh, like seeing the world like it was in the eclipse. So I kind of, I, I wouldn't say I hallucinated an eclipse because I didn't look at the sun. It was just, it looked like eclipse lighting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've ever been in an eclipse. It's mm-hmm. a very awesome experience yeah. and the light just looks a very certain way during yeah. totality. And that's what it looked like. And so that was really strange as well, of course. Um, some other visual things I see are like shadow people in the corners. I've seen little monsters that kind of hang out in the corners. I've had something rush at my bed before. So that was a multi-sensory hallucination because I saw the shadow figure and then I felt it hit the bed and I heard the feet running. So that was a multi-sensory hallucination, which is a red flag for things might not be going as well as we'd like to. And then I also had a same similar thing where a um, hallucination was buzz cutting my hair. And so that, that was a really weird one too. But yeah, so those are some multi-sensory I've had, but there are some visual elements into those. Yeah, I mean, shadow people in the corners and monsters, that sounds terrifying. It is. It really, really is. And it's, it's, it's really funny because people all around the world, and this is where we get into a little bit of a dangerous territory of what's a spiritual belief and what's a hallucination and what's a delusion and where do we draw the line there? Because a lot of people who do not experience psychosis see shadow people all the time in the exact way that I've seen them. So the question is, are they hallucinating or am I seeing something else that other people have seen as well? So Mm. it's kind of a weird phenomenon there because the the phenomena of like, you know, the hat man with Benadryl and the shadow person in the corner and stuff like that. Like that's a fairly common thing in the mainstream anything. Did you say hat man with Benadryl? That's, that's a new one to me. You never heard of that? No, no. What is that? It's, it's a, it's a common thing. Well, I think they actually call it a hallucination. So it might be actually appropriate for what I'm saying. Um, it's, it's something that young kids do. They take a bunch of Benadryl and there's a common hallucination when they do that. Like many people have reported seeing this same um, as a shadow person with a big top hat. Oh my God. <laughs> okay. That, that fills in. I, I've been hearing about some TikTok trend or something of people taking too much Benadryl, but I had no idea yeah. what it was. Um, so that, yeah. yeah, that must be it. That's a horrible idea. Don't do that. People <laughs> yeah. don't take that much Benadryl. The first time I saw that, I was like, oh my goodness, why would you try to see that? Yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, that, that's young kids for you. So if you see something frightening like that, is it just, it gives you a shock and you have to just come down from that adrenaline rush? Is there a, yeah. a sense of um, foreboding that you might see something like that? Is there a sense of fear that that might happen again? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm constantly afraid of seeing something else scary in the dark, right? I yeah. mean, nobody wants to see that. Um, but there's also to consider that for me, for hallucinations anyway, not for delusions, but for hallucinations, I have insider meta-awareness of my condition, which means that I am able to recognize my symptoms as symptoms, which means that when I see a hallucination, for the most part, I can tell that it's not real, or I can usually work it out pretty quickly. I can only do that for hallucinations. And some people can do that, some people can't. There's no clear answer as to what makes a person capable of doing that or not um there's nothing that you can point to and say well this this and this may be causing it but um so for visual and odd or for any hallucination i can usually tell that it's not real so that does make it a little less scary yeah but i often i often relate it to watching a scary movie you know it's not real but it still scares you <laughs> yeah absolutely do you, you watch still don't want to turn off the light at night <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean you've got a real real reason to be afraid of the dark you know i mean yes uh, we yes. all i think we all have fear of the dark when we're kids and uh, fear of what might be in the shadows as kids. Um, but I think it's a thing a lot of people work through. But for you, there's a legit reason to be afraid of the dark. Yeah. After that one hallucination I had where I told you um, that, that it ran at my bed. So it, it was very interesting because I woke up and I saw it. And, and, and you kind of go through like a, a little step process, right? Where it's like, there's someone in my room. Wait, you have schizophrenia. There's nobody in your room. Oh, it's just a shadow person. A little scary to look at, but it's fine. And then they ran at me. Mm. And that scared the mess out of me. I slept with a nightlight for two weeks after that. Yeah, I, I would too. I, I, I just, I, I was like, no, I, I just, I slept with a nightlight and I slept with a headlamp in my hand. I was like, nope, if I see it again, we're turning the light on. We're going to get rid of the, <laughs> it was a, it was a very stressful time in my life when that particular hallucination happened. <laughs> yeah. It sounds, sounds horrible. Do you watch scary movies? Is it a bad idea to put uh, fear imagery in your head? It probably is, but I love scary movies and there's <laughs> lots of people who speculate there's probably a connection there. And I don't disagree with them necessarily. Um, I love scary movies. Um, I'm not easily scared by them. I've yet to really watch any kind of scary movie that's given me any real lasting fear. I mean, there, there, there's been a couple that are very, very good. Um, but no, there probably is a connection there. Mm. For our horror buffs that are listening, I have to ask, what are your favorite scary movies? So um, I love The Conjuring. Um, I think um, one, two, and have I seen? Yes, I've seen three now. Um, I, I love the first three. I, I, I really like them. They do a good job. Um, James, James Wan or James Wan, I might get his name wrong. I've only seen it in print, never heard his name said. But um, James Wan does amazing work. Mm. Um, he did he did The Conjuring, so I'm pretty sure. And then also the Insidious movie series. I, I, I love them a lot. There's a Netflix film called The Ritual. That one is very good as well. Um, yeah, I, I love scary movies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, okay. The first medication you tried was horrible, made all your symptoms worse. And then I'm assuming you just have to keep cycling through and trying more medications until you find one that works. What was that process like? It's called shotgun. Um, that, that's actually what it's referred to as a shotgun. Cause what do you do? I mean, you just have to, I, I often joke that the reason we started with Abilify is because it's AB. So it was first in the alphabet. 
Abilify is a dopamine agonist. So the way antipsychotics work, they can vary in different ways. They all interact with dopamine, but they do it in different ways. So some medications will block dopamine receptors. Some medications will attach to the dopamine themselves and just cancel it out. Some medications will block the dopamine, um, the one, the parts of your brain that create dopamine. So, you know, there's a bunch of different ways you can mess with dopamine levels. So a good psychiatrist is going to say Abilify is a dopamine agonist. We don't need to try that. Any more meds like that, that's probably not going to work because you find as you look into medications, more of these medications have cousins and they kind of have families. Mm. So after Abilify, I tried a medication called Seroquel, which is um, quetiapine. And so we found out that peens, so quetiapine works really well for me. Mm. Unfortunately, I built up a tolerance to it. That's another battle I have to face is that I have a very, I have a very, um, I'm an ultra rapid metabolizer for most medications. So most medications I get, I have to be on the max dose. And I, I tend to develop um, a tolerance to them, which is really frustrating, especially when one's working like um, Seroquel was. After Seroquel, which is quetiapine, we tried Latuda, which gave me tardive dyskinesia, which is another neurological condition. It causes um, tremors and shakes and muscle spasms. So I have to deal with that now. After Latuda, we decided to go back to a peen. So we tried a Cinepine, which is trade named Saffris, which was um, pretty good for me. It tastes horrible. You have to put it under your tongue mm. and it tastes like cotton candy and death. Like it's just the worst <laughs> thing I've ever, ever dealt with because it was it was black cherry flavored. And I believe that they believe it's black cherry flavored, <laughs> but I don't think they asked anybody to try it. first. I mean, it was horrible. But um, so after that, um, acenapine was working pretty well. We went back to Seroquel to see if that would work once acenapine stopped working. We were hoping to build up a system where we would just cycle through them every six months. But unfortunately, the tolerance had stood. So after quetiapine, we then tried olanzapine, uh, which again is another peen. So we had pretty high hopes for it to work well. And it did. Um, olanzapine did work really well controlling my symptoms, but gave me a lot of side effects. So I gained a lot of weight. I was sleeping for all hours of the day. I wasn't getting anything done at home. I was barely functional at work. So I was like, I can't stay on this. And that's, you know, what I talked about earlier. You have to choose between destroying your body or saving your mind. So I was like, I can't be on a landscape anymore. I can't live like this. <laughs> um, I would rather be delusional than not be able to do anything. Like, yeah. So um, after a landscape, we switched to a medication called FNAP, uh, which worked really, really well for me for a while. Um, second best quetiapine is the best that ever happened to me but FNAP was a pretty close second um but unfortunately i built up a tolerance to that too so now we're back on olanzapine because we know it works and um to be perfectly transparent because i don't have insurance right now working on the farm and olanzapine is cheap <laughs> mm. so i'm assuming that there's always going to be the concern of of building up a tolerance to whatever you're taking yep that is so yep. frustrating i mean <laughs> it really is yeah, I what what does it feel like to be reliant on these medications but know that even if one is working it's going to be temporary. Yeah, I mean it's very frustrating and it's um it gets us closer to being labeled treatment resistant, which is something I'd love to not be labeled as. Yeah. <laughs> so um so that's always kind of on the horizon um but Fortunately, in today's day and age, there are tons of treatment options out there, not even just medication. A lot of people think um, the ECT electroconvulsive therapy, um, they say that that works really well for them. There's long-lasting long injection medication now. So instead of taking a pill, you take an injection. 
So there, I still have a lot of hope because there's a lot out there that we haven't tried. And um, we also have a medication called clozapine, which is um, another peen, but it requires weekly blood monitoring because of the side effects. Mm. But it's also a very, very effective drug. So that one's always on deck if we ever get truly desperate. But so far, I've been on lanzapine for a few weeks now. And so far, everything's going pretty well. What's the longest you've been on a single medication? Uh, probably Seroquel. And I'd say I was on that for about, I was on it for a good while. So probably six months, six to seven months. That's a good while for me. <laughs> In the grand scheme of things, that's not very long to have to be no, switching not. medications, especially when it sounds like they have all these horrible side effects. Uh, you know, do you know anything about the process of, I mean, this is a very medical question. This might be a silly question to ask because I know no one here is a doctor, but do you know anything about the process of why these medications have to have these horrible side effects? I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, like I said, I'm not a doctor, so I won't speculate into that. But yeah. um, I will say it's just a matter of we don't we don't really we know what antipsychotics do, but we still don't know what causes schizophrenia, even though we know what to do to treat it. Again, it's kind of shotgun. We think it has something to do with dopamine because antipsychotics mess with dopamine levels and it gives people release of symptoms. So we think it has something to do with dopamine, but who knows? But anytime you start fidgeting with neurotransmitters, you're going to take away from something else, I guess would be my theory there. Um, Cause neurotransmitters, of course they, they run your whole body. I mean, yeah. if you start messing with something over here, it's going to change your, your, how you metabolize food. So you're going to have weight gain. It's going to change your sleep pattern. So you have insomnia. It's going to change your muscle reaction. So you get tardive dyskinesia. So I can see maybe that would be why. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. Knowing that there is likely a dopamine element happening. Do you have to completely avoid cannabis? Is that something that is just unsafe? Yeah, that's unsafe for someone with schizophrenia. Yeah. Um, some people have said, I, I've heard, I've, well, let me put it this way. I've heard from the lay person that it's helped them, and I think that's great. But I've heard from medical professionals to stay far away from it. Yeah. I've never done any, I've never done any, anything with cannabis before. Um, but yeah, it's, it's dangerous. I mean, that would make a lot of sense if, you know, a dopamine agonist is helping something that, you know, is called yeah. dope. <laughs> it's probably a bad idea. Right, right. exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, and this is so interesting. We did a, an episode about Parkinson's recently, um, which is caused by a lack of dopamine. So dopamine, yeah, dopamine does all sorts of things in the body. And it sounds like, you know, the more we learn about it, the more we're learning that we don't know everything. Yeah, we, we definitely don't know everything. Um, I, I think sometimes people don't understand how little we do know. Like, we yeah. don't even really understand what dopamine does. I yeah. mean, we, know, we know what it does based on what we observe it doing. But then, like you said, and it's probably the same with Parkinson's, when they start taking medication to help with their dopamine levels, their side effects there, too. So it's just like, we really don't know what we're doing. And then, like, I remember my uncle had a... Um, it was a stroke, but it was a little stroke. Yeah, a TIA. That we we I just spoke with someone on the show recently who had one of those. Yeah, but you know they went well. That's what well that's what he finally wanted. That, that wasn't the point of the story. He finally got diagnosed with that after he because he had all these symptoms where in the middle of the day all of a sudden he couldn't speak, he couldn't talk, he couldn't answer questions. Like you know something's very wrong, and they go to the doctor. And they're like, uh, well, according to everything we have, there's nothing wrong with you. And he's sitting there and he can't talk. So, like, so it's like they finally just diagnosed it as a TIA because they're like, we don't know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, it's so frustrating when 
uh, my my long history with chronic illness, uh, I just got a diagnosis um, as we're recording this like a month ago. Um, and oh, I've been sick on and off my whole life. Uh, and I kept going to doctors and they kept saying, well, there's nothing wrong on your tests, so there must be nothing wrong. It's like, <laughs> that is not how reality no, works. There's you know? something wrong. Right. There's nothing on your test because you don't know how to figure out what's wrong. You haven't done the you right test. No yes. well, yeah. For a lot of people, the right test doesn't even exist. I mean, there's diseases that yeah. haven't been cataloged. My disease, uh, mast cell activation syndrome, the testing is extremely inaccurate. And if you test negative, that doesn't necessarily mean you don't have the disease. So exactly, yeah, there's all, there's all this gray area in medicine. And it's really important to be aware of that. Uh, you know, doctors try to make it sound like we know everything, which is a red flag for me if I hear a doctor say that, because it's yeah. just not the case. We know a lot. And the amount of things that we know is staggering and so amazing. Like the, the combined knowledge of, of humanity with medical science like there's so much that we've learned about how the body works and what you can do like what you can put into the body or remove from the body to to change things but oftentimes it's like we know that that works because we've tried it with a bunch of people and it has worked we consistently. That it works. yeah we, we don't, don't know, know how why. it works we just know that it does yeah exactly. the mechanism is a mystery and the future is bright there's a lot of time to learn more things but there's just so much stuff that we just we act on without necessarily understanding and that's the thing about schizophrenia is that there, there is no test and there never will be. I mean, there's nothing you can do. There's no blood test you can take to determine if you have schizophrenia. It's all based on self-report. I mean, wow, which is incredibly inaccurate all the time. I mean, every time I'm with my psychiatrist, I try very hard to describe as clearly as I can what's going on. Yeah. Yeah. So that you can make a better decision. Yeah. That's, that's so interesting to think about as well. Um, tell me about the process of integrating this diagnosis into your life. Over the last four years, you know, that's a big diagnosis to get. And then also dealing with like just getting off of a 10 year period of a 10 year long delusion and learning how to sort of let that go while integrating this new uh, diagnosis. That's a lot of inner work to, to go through in four years. What has that process been like? This is what I went to school for. I, I went to school for psychology and counseling. So wow. Part of it, part of it was just trying to recognize that I needed to integrate this into myself, like you said. Um, and really, the way that I did that was through education. So I started off just doing it on Facebook, just sharing posts about like. Um, I remember when I first told people that I had schizophrenia. It was a year after my diagnosis, and I decided it was time to start telling people, you know, other than close friends and family, because I told them, you know, pretty much as soon as I diagnosed. But I was like, you know what? I really want to tell other people. I want other people to understand what schizophrenia actually is, because it is not portrayed well on the news and the media and TV shows and books and any anything. It's just not portrayed well. And I wanted people to understand what it actually looked like. And so I started doing that education on Facebook and then eventually moved to TikTok. Um, and that has been hugely helpful. So the reason why it might be helpful is because it's kind of compartmentalization. So I'm just putting it in a box, which some people would argue maybe isn't the same as integrating into self, but it's working for me. If I put schizophrenia in an education box and teach people about it, it's helped me cope with it a lot. So that, that's kind of, that's been the biggest thing for me. I think that's amazing. I think that's so cool. And again, that's how I, I came to you is seeing this education that you're posting online. And what struck me about it was the openness and honesty with which you're describing your experiences. Uh, because yeah, I think that's really important. It's so important. And it's because of what you're saying about the way that schizophrenia is portrayed in the media. I mean, there is a stigma around schizophrenia because of the poor portrayal in the media. Yeah, it's a horrible trope. It's a horrible trope. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's so often that like the villain 
is acting villainously because they have schizophrenia. You know, that's, it's sort of a, something that, that writers lean on all the time is like an easy way to sort of say, oh, well, this person's evil because they have schizophrenia, which is such a huge disservice to the people actually living with the disease. Can you speak on that? How does that make you feel? And what is the harm that that has caused? Yeah. Um, and not only that, but also I recently found in one of my favorite TV shows, like I love Stranger Things. Uh, they use they use paranoid schizophrenia, which is an outdated term anyway. Well, come to think of it, it wouldn't have been in their um, time, actually. That would have been anachronism. <laughs> but um, anyway, not the point. So, but, you know, they use schizophrenia as a way to discredit somebody. Like they found a bunch of evidence about something. I don't remember the specifics of the plot, but they found a bunch of evidence about something from this person. They said, no, she has schizophrenia. She can't be trusted. Yeah. So that really hurts. You know, like they and and what she was saying was true. You know, she was genuinely being helpful and would have furthered the plot along and would have, you know, the good guys would have won faster if they could have listened to her. Um, but yeah, it's it's hurtful, is what it is. And I know that every time something like that happens, every time someone watches something like that, it makes when I reveal my diagnosis to them, I know that it creates another barrier for them to go over before they can see me as me and not see me as a diagnosis. So every time someone uses it in a movie or a TV show or a book, um, it's one more barrier that I have to hop when I get to know people. And that sucks. <laughs> yeah. I mean, getting to know people is hard enough as it is. Can you, can you tell me more about how this has affected your um, interpersonal relationships? Yeah. Um, so far, it hasn't really. Um, I've had a lot of people reach out and say, thank you. I know such and such who has this, but they don't talk about it. So I'm glad you're talking about it. So um, I've grown a lot of relationships just from my transparency and people are really grateful for what I've done. Um, I had one friend who told me that I was sharing too much and that I shouldn't be putting stuff like that on social media. And I was like, well, uh, that's kind of that. No, <laughs> I'm going to do that because it's helping me and it's helping others. So, so that was okay. No, it's been pretty positive so far. Um, it comes up a lot on my TikToks. It's like, what's your dating life like? Well, actually, it's non-existent. So if it, if I can ever tell you how it affects, how my schizophrenia affects my dating life, I'll let you know. But right now, I don't have one. So mm. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> what, what has this been like with uh, extended family? Uh, great. My family... Um, we're we're all very close extended family wise um i actually live i actually grew up with my aunt and uncle because like i said both my parents died um and we are we're very much a family that gets together very often there's um five daughters and then various children and grandchildren from them um and my grandmother and grandfather uh, and we get together regularly um so with my extended family um I, I i struggle to even call them that because of how close we all are we we see each other all the time yeah um but yeah same thing um they've all been you know very positive and supportive of my journey yeah i'm so glad to hear that are there any things with schizophrenia that help besides medication you know lifestyle changes anything like that that you try to adhere to yeah, I always say taking care of your body is taking care of your mind. And mm. so making sure that you're still exercising, drinking water, um, anything you can do to make your body healthier is going to either it is going to actually help the schizophrenia, which it totally can, or it's going to get something off your plate, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So if you are taking good care of your body and your lungs and your heart, that's one less thing to worry about in addition to schizophrenia. So that's why I, I don't do drugs. I don't smoke. I don't drink very often because I have enough going on in my body. I don't need to add things to it. Um, so stuff that, that, that's very helpful. I think is um, taking care of your body for sure. Uh, meditation helps. Um, I know it helps some people. It doesn't help me, but I've heard so many people say that it does. Um, and so I will always share that because of how many people have said that it does help them. I'm trying to think of anything else, but that might be it. 
Yeah, you know, it's it's so funny how those things can help with literally everything. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if, if you are if your body's failing, your brain's going to be failing. Your brain is part of your body. I mean, yeah. there's your mind and there's your brain, but you need to take care of both. When you were younger, were you, you know, drinking and partying more? Was this something that you had to sort of adjust your lifestyle once you got this diagnosis? No, I, I, I never was mm. someone who like went out and partied. I I didn't drink alcohol until I was 22 years old. That was the first time I ever had it. And since then, I could probably count on my fingers and toes the number of times that I've actually become intoxicated. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, like, it, it doesn't happen very often. And that's just a personal decision that I made. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with my diagnosis, I can't drink really at all. Um, and it's, you know, I have to eat very healthy, very specific diet, I have to get the right amount of exercise. There can't be too much or too little to keep my body <laughs> balanced. And, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where it's like, once you accept your diagnosis and start working on trying to integrate it into your life and live the, the healthiest life you can within having a chronic uh, diagnosis of any kind, um, they're just choices you have to make and you just get used to it yeah. and it becomes a part of your life. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So just thinking about your journey as a whole and being diagnosed with, uh, with schizophrenia, are there days where you feel like this is so unfair that I have to live with this? You know, are there days that you sort of um, struggle against the reality of what's happening? Yeah. Um, especially on days when I'm finding myself like struggling to do something like today in our interview so far has been pretty good as far as my speech issues. Um, but I was legit worried that I was going to have a lot of trouble talking and thankfully I haven't. Um, but on the days where I can't talk or form the words or there's things I can't do, like I've been trying to reread a book and I can't keep up because all the characters, all their names are just kind of, it's just not working. Mm. Um, it's really frustrating because I used to be a very academic person. I used to be smart and had a quick wit and now it's just like everything slowed down and that's the meds and schizophrenia that's why i, I <laughs> i'm going to start introducing them as separate things like yes i have schizophrenia i also have all these side effects from the meds um but yeah there's a lot of days where i just feel very upset that i've been dealt this hand but um you know i'm a i try to be positive and remember that there's a lot of really cool things that i get to do with my life and that i have a great life but yeah, absolutely. There are days when I just rail against why me. <laughs> yeah. Are there coping mecha mechanisms that you lean on on those days? Yeah. Um, and it's just mindfulness and reminding myself where I am and all the good that I've been able to do, all that I've been able to accomplish with schizophrenia. So that's what's really important to me um, is I, I try to look at things through the frame of schizophrenia. And you, you should never compare your situation to someone else's, but looking at what I'm able to accomplish versus... Um, you know, what I, what I was before schizophrenia and what I thought I was going to be able to accomplish. And then now what I've actually been able to do with the schizophrenia has been really helpful to me. Like whenever I see people comment, like, you know, you're making a difference and you know, you're making a difference in my life. You're helping me understand my son. You're helping me understand my, my friend. Um, whenever I'm able to see that um, it's really helpful and that's just being mindful. So that's the coping mechanism there. It's just being mindful about it. Yeah. And that's such a healthy positive thing to lean on and it's something that you've built that is helping you that is I, and that's why i think that's so cool that you know you talked about the compartmentalization of putting schizophrenia in this education box but that is such a healthy box to build you know <laughs> like you're, you're not only helping yourself but helping the world at large and if that's your coping mechanism then that's like a incredible hack that you've discovered to <laughs> you know to to channel all of this into something positive that's really impressive yeah, I just, I just think when you're if you're if you're 
if you can find a way to integrate what the issue is into the solution, you're going to have a much better solution. Yeah. And you, you know, you mentioned earlier that you're a fast talker. You're totally a fast talker, you know, and <laughs> you know, this conversation you've been, I in, am. Uh, you, you've been an incredible communicator, you know, and I, I totally, I, I have some uh, intermittent communication issues as well. And I know what it feels like to not be sure if your words are going to be there and to have that fear yeah. of that. And, uh, you know, I used to be a, a live streamer. I don't do that at all anymore because just the the paranoia of not knowing if my words are going to be there on that day. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, that's rough. But most of the time, other people don't know. You know, most of the time, other people can't tell. And talking to you, I can't tell, you know, uh, but I but I believe you 100%. I believe you. Yeah. But when I watch this later, I'm going to be able or listen to this later. I'm going to be able to see all these issues. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're always harder on ourselves than other people are. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's harder on yourself, but it's also just the reality of, you know, what you're capable of mm. and or, well, you hate to say it this way, but what you used to be capable of. And so then you look back at what you used to be able to do and now all of a sudden you can't and that causes some distress sure and i yes i i've experienced that as well but i i this is my compartmentalization where i think of it a little differently where i think of all the things that i wouldn't know and wouldn't be able to do if i hadn't had to go through some health challenges where it like really that. kind of you know changed my perspective on life and how i interact with other people yeah. my own level of empathy and Everybody is going to slow down as they get older. That's normal, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So trying to think about the journey and what it has brought me uh, and the places that it has taken me, you know, you and I would never be speaking if, if we hadn't gone through health challenges. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. This podcast wouldn't exist. Uh, and it's one of the things that I've done that I'm most proud of. Your advocacy wouldn't exist. These illnesses, they bring things to our lives that we grow to love. There's positives in it. Yeah. A lot of people find it hard to believe, but there's positives in it. And yeah. you have to find them. You have to find those positives or you're not going to make it. <laughs> totally. Absolutely. What are some of the positives? I mean, obviously your advocacy work is one, but what are some other positives that schizophrenia has brought to you? Um, you already touched on it, actually. Just um, the empathy I feel towards people who have disabilities, especially invisible disabilities, because... Um, what, what I've told people before, like when I, when I've talked to them in person is like, if you look at me, it doesn't appear that I have a disability. My hands work, my feet work. I can walk, I can jump, you know, and everything looks fine. But if you roll dice in front of me, I can't add it automatically anymore. I have to count the dots or like playing some board games are too complicated for me now. So like, we'll sit down and play a board game we played before and I can't figure it out. There's just that invisible disability that like, I just have a lot more empathy for people who, and I'm not going to say I was like, you know, an unempathetic person, like how dare this person take longer at checkout. But now I'm just like, you know, maybe they need some extra time to read the numbers. Maybe they need to stare at the card to make sure it's the right card before they put it in. And that's okay. And I don't, like I said, I don't think I was unempathetic before, but I'm certainly more empathetic now. And yeah. I think that's a huge, huge difference for me. Yeah, me too as well. And empathy, I think, is one of the most important things in the world. I think the more empathy yeah, we I have, agree. the better of a world we're going to have. I agree. So I have one more question for you. If you could go back in time and bring yourself a message when you were 17 years old, based off of the journey that you've been on, especially in the last four years where you've gotten your diagnosis and you've been through all these medications and you've learned so much about yourself, you've developed this new sense of uh, self-awareness about you know, what is real and what isn't. The approach that you've taken to all of this is very impressive to me. Um, so if you could Thank give you. yourself a piece of advice at 17 years old before you had any idea what was going on, what would it be? Hmm. 
The first piece of advice would be, guess what? You're not the Antichrist. <laughs> the next one, <laughs> that would be my piece of advice. <laughs> um, but um, the serious answer, I think, is just to remember to stick it, stick it, stick through it and understand like there's there's a song that's been i've been obsessed with lately it's called um disengage and one of the one of the lines is like this life is a lesson and we're just improving so like just stick through it and don't give up and even when you're going to be given some incredibly hard curveballs we're going to be able to turn it into something good and if we can turn schizophrenia into something good we can turn anything into something good Amazing. Yeah, that's incredible advice. Daniel, what an incredible conversation. You've done Thank such you. a great job today. So fascinating, so interesting, and also just uh, just really powerful to hear from someone being so open and honest about something that is very often, you know, stigmatized falsely. And yeah, and because of that, I, I imagine that there's a lot of uh, hesitancy with people with schizophrenia to talk about it publicly. And there's a lot of, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of horrible pushback from uh, from the public. I'm sure you've had some horrible comments on TikTok. Yes, I have. <laughs> <laughs> and which is so unfair, but that just makes what you're doing so much more impressive and your bravery and openness so much more impressive. Um, Thank you. Please tell us where our audience can go to connect with you online or anything else you'd like to plug. The best place to find me is TikTok and you can find me at Schizo Archer, S-C-H-I-Z-O-A-R-C-H-E-R. Awesome. Schizo Archer. I follow you there. I will tag you on TikTok uh, when this episode goes up. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time, for your openness, and for an incredible episode of the podcast. I'm thrilled to share this conversation. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, I really had a lot of fun. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Major Pain. I'm Jesse Mercury, your host and the producer of this podcast. Artwork by Egg Salad Salad. Our theme music is the song Time Machine from my sci-fi synth-pop album, available at jessemercury.bandcamp.com. Send your thoughts or questions to our email address, majorpainpodcast at gmail.com. You can also use that address to find us on PayPal. Tips are greatly appreciated. Don't forget to leave a positive rating and review on Apple Podcasts or the podcast platform of your choice. Find more information about this show or leave a comment on any episode at our website, majorpainpodcast.com. Major Pain is supported by listeners on Patreon. Thank you to our $2 per month supporters, our $7 per month patrons, Naomi Adele Smith, Sunny Roberts, Laura Stevens, Kelsey Madsen, All Around Foundation Waterproofing, Danielle Signorelli, Alexandria Henderson, Justin Minnick, Heather Muncie, and Robert, and our $25 per month producers, Steve Cavanaugh, Chris Fowler, Ensign Q, Trish O'Brien, and Hipster Leia. Learn how you can support the show while receiving special recognition, gifts, and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash Pain Podcast.